Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Who better to talk about the complicated personalities of the two presidential candidates than legendary New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd? She'll be here to talk about all of that and her new book, The Year of Voting Dangerously. Suddenly, you know, this reality star sort of cavorted onto the stage and came down the golden escalator and changed politics forever, maybe. How do you fall in love in a foreign language that you don't speak? Lauren Collins explores this and other cross-cultural matters of the heart in her new book, When in French. What am I missing? Because since he had two languages and I only had one, I felt like he had all the information. He could go both ways. I was the one who was lacking. Also, literary news and what we and other people are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. The drama this election season is a gift to someone like Maureen Dowd, who's been observing politicians and our political system for years. Her latest book, The Year of Voting Dangerously, collects her columns about the 2016 presidential race and her years of covering Clinton and Trump. I'm so happy to welcome to the podcast Maureen Dowd. Maureen, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Does this election continue to surprise you, or is it kind of like nothing is shocking at this point? You know, I went on the road for two years in uh, 2007, 2008, because I didn't think I would ever see a campaign that was that amazing again. It had everything. It had gender. It had race. It had the young prince usurping the queen, like Game of Thrones. And then I was shocked when this year came, and I thought it was going to be just this um, battle of the old dueling dynasties of the Bushes and the Clintons, and would not be very interesting. And then suddenly, you know, this reality star sort of cavorted onto the stage (laughs) and came down the golden escalator and changed politics forever, maybe, for all of this stuff. So you have um, in the book these interludes um, with your your various uh, family members. How did you decide to incorporate that into the book? Well, once a year, I give my column to my brother, my conservative brother, because I think it's fun to kind of shake up the liberal Times readers and show them, you know, the belly of the beast in red state America. But um, the publisher, you know, 12, Hachette is my publisher. And so Sean Desmond said to me, do you, can we get an essay from your brother? And I was surprised, but I called him and he was thrilled because he thinks he's Ernest Hemingway and wants to go on all the book signings. And uh, so anyway, we did it. And I'd never asked my sister, but my sister has this crazy political trajectory, almost like Selig, where when she was 18, she was at JFK's inauguration. She Mm -hmm. was in love with JFK. 
Then she moved to California, and she was at the Ambassador Hotel the night Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, my God. Hoping to vote for Bobby Kennedy. And then in California, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, was her governor, and she fell in love with him. So she kind of went back to being a Republican. She had been a Goldwater girl like Hillary. Then she fell in love with W and came to the 2000 convention and wanted to stay in my room. I was there covering it, and I opened the door, and she was standing there with a W stands for women sign. And I said, you can come in, but the sign has to stay outside (laughs) because that is ridiculous. So then after W, she got disillusioned with the Iraq War and voted for Obama. Then she got disillusioned with Obama and went down to Cuba on vacation and uh, fell in love with Che Guevara and became a communist. For oh, wow. Days. There's an unexpected turn. <laughs> yeah. Then she got back and in the primary, as a vote against Hillary, voted for Bernie Sanders. So she was a socialist for an hour. Now she has gone back to her Republican roots and is supporting Trump. But she kind of gets off that train every time he says something racist or misogynistic. And in the book, I described talking to Trump. And, you know, he said, is your sister still for me? And I said, no, because you retweeted that unflattering picture of Heidi Cruz. There was silence. And then he said, "Um, it wasn't that unflattering. And I said, yes, it was unflattering. Why don't you just apologize? (laughs) And he did the unthinkable, which is he apologized. And so then my sister went back to him, but then I think she jumped off again at the cons because that was a horrible thing. So, And after the cons, Kevin, my brother, called me and said, can we kill my (laughs) Trump essay? And I said, no, the book has gone to print. But I think it provides an interesting kind of insight into what Paul Ryan is going through, because Paul Ryan can't give any interviews about this. But if you read my siblings' essays, you can see the agony that a standard you know, conservative or Republican is going through with the party held hostage to the whims of this 70-year-old high chair king. Right. It's like the for, the for the ultimate party loyalists, how do you remain loyal to someone who isn't even essentially of the party himself? Right. And, and those guys, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, can't talk about it right now. So I think it's good you can see what's in their head, basically, by reading Kevin and Peggy. A lot of the book is earlier columns of yours, and you, I'm assuming, went back and you looked at all of the things you'd read about Trump and all the things you'd, you'd written about Clinton. When you go back and you look at all those earlier columns, kind of what's your what's your initial feeling? Like, do you ever feel like, oh, my God, I can't believe I wrote that or I got this right. I can't believe I got that right or I can't believe I got that wrong sort of. I was surprised at the Hillary the early Hillary stuff, because, you know, I was a news reporter then, and it's almost like I have a girl crush on her. It's so supportive. Mm -hmm. You know, when she's running as Bill's wife, I was very sympathetic about the idea that someone with the same credentials as her husband was going to have to go into this antiquated job of first lady. Hillary was chafing at the job and got really upset during the campaign because she got some stationery that had left out Rodham and just said Hillary Clinton, and she sent it back. And I was I was supportive about that, and I was very flattering to her when she came up to the Hill about health care, even though I had my doubts. I said she was dazzling and she, you know, won the day and that she and Bill were handling it, this delicate tango, very well. But then she um, 
you know, got into this very self-destructive pattern she had where she's very secretive. She hates the press. She kept them out of the process. It was a very closed process. She wouldn't make any compromises. It was my way or the highway. And that's why health care went down. And, and no one could talk to her because she was the wife of the president. And Bill stayed out of it because that's when there was the publicity about Paula Jones and the Arkansas troopers. So as somebody, I quote this guy, this top health care aide to Hillary, and I asked him why isn't she listening to Bill and getting smarter political advice? And this guy said, because she has a hundred pound fishing wire around his balls because of the affair. Mm. So he couldn't intervene either. Trump reminds me a little bit of uh, Putin in that that <laughs> famous, uh, well, yeah, for many reasons. But there's that famous anecdote, you know, where George W. Bush goes and he looks into the soul of Putin and, you know, sort of fought, and then, has this... And then John McCain had that great line where he said, W looked into Putin's soul and saw the letters KGB. Right. I feel like this is sort of happening with like with with Trump, where people who knew him early on, you know, didn't have the impression that they have of him now. They're sort of they're they're taken aback. Do you feel that way? Or do you feel like there's a through line between the early Trump you knew in the 90s and the Trump we're seeing today? Well, you're so smart because you've put your finger on the exact thing about Trump, which is, you know, this is not the Republican Party ideology to have their nominee cozying up to the evil empire. It's the opposite of their ideology. But they're all twisting around like pretzels to try and explain and support him on this, even though it's absurd. So it's the first time that the Republican Party ideology has been subjugated to the individual ego and the ego, Trump's ego, he's letting his ego like rule the whole party because Putin gave him a compliment. And the hilarious thing is, according to Stephen Lee Myers, our brilliant, you know, Washington reporter who has a book about Putin, a biography of him, he thinks maybe it was mistranslated, that it wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't that he was calling Trump brilliant. It was a word that meant flashy. You know, oh. so this whole ridiculous episode of liking it's like, you know, in grade school, it's like he likes me, so I like him. You know, this has never before happened in political history where a whole party is twisting and turning just because the nominee got a compliment, so they have to flip their whole policy. It's, it, it would be hilarious if it wasn't a little scary. Right. I want to ask you a favor, um, which is, would you read from one of your columns? I think that when, when we readers uh, read your words, you have such a distinctive voice. And so we all hear your voice reading them to ourselves. But it'd be great if you could pick um, a column that either was especially meaningful to you or you think is has some particular insight into the current campaign or is just fun and read a little bit aloud to us. Ivanka, the fabulous, fabulous. This is from the Republican Convention. Ivanka Trump glided on stage to the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun. It was apt. She was sun-kissed, her blonde hair perfectly sleek, blowing photogenically, no doubt from a fan in the podium. The fashion entrepreneur's blush pink sheath and stilettos looked Fifth Avenue chic. The 34-year-old ornament to the Trump brand was like a beautiful sunny morning in the midst of a dark, lashing hailstorm. She was glossy, 
both in how she looked and how she spoke. She glossed over all of her father's ugly rhetoric and incitements, his erratic behavior and lack of any policy depth or even any policy, and offered a gauzy, idealized vision of a Bobby Kennedy-style figure as her father channeled Richard Nixon in 68. She hailed her dad as a fighter against injustice, a boss who is colorblind and gender neutral, who hires people of all ethnicities and backgrounds. She glossed over the entire ideology of the GOP and the regressive party platform for women and presented her father as a feminist who fights for women in the Trump organization and who would fight as president for child care, quote, affordable and accessible for all, unquote, and for women's rights, equal pay, and maternity leave. I will fight for this, too, right alongside him, she said, serving once more as the classy conjurer of the moderate, sane Donald in place of the dark, ugly Donald. I am so glad that you brought up Ivanka. I have to ask you, like, do you understand her? It was interesting talking to her because I think I got an insight into she has this mask of poise, but I think this has been really hard for her because she was kind of the person that this company was heading toward. She was the future. And now when he gets out of this race, the brand will be definitely damaged, if not ruined. And she's putting a good face on that. But, you know, she was good friends with Mike Bloomberg, and she had to watch him get up there and kind of trash her father during the Democratic convention. And I think that really hurt her. Right. And there's a big adjustment in her and her husband's lives. And some of their friends now think her father is terrifying. And she's helping him. So I don't think she lets that show usually, but I'm sure that's been really hard for her. Do you think about what are you going to write after the election results, that first column, and think, okay, if it's Hillary, I'm going to write this. And if it's Trump, I will write that. Do you sort of start to kind of gather your thoughts at this point? Or is it just so early? No, I'm very Buddhist about my writing. I write in the moment. And, you know, I have to be scared. The adrenaline has to kick in. And in the old days, when I wrote on 43rd Street, I would have to wait and hear the delivery trucks engines running (laughs) before I would be scared enough (laughs) to actually put something on the blank screen. So, no, it will be in the moment. All right. Well, readers will be waiting for that scary moment um, (laughs) to hear what you have to say. Maureen, thank you so much. Thanks, Pamela. You're the best. The book, again, is The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics, out this week by Maureen Dowd. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, You're looking at the map of where you're going, if you're on a paved road, field roads, is there a hospital nearby? 
Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Alexander Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So this is award season. It's Award season is upon us again. It feels like it never went away and it's back in force. But we're judgmental people, so we like to read about people judging books. Exactly. And there are some really interesting nominees this year. This week we had the announcement of the National Book of Foundation's long-listed awards for the National Book Award. There's four categories, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and young people's literature. And this is just the second year in which they're doing a long list, or is it the third year I now? I believe it's the third, third year, year now. Okay. And it's a way of sort of generating excitement early on and sort of putting the spotlight on a larger group of authors. So for the long list, they picked 10 books in each category. And on Thursday, they announced the fiction nominees. And it was a really interesting group of writers. Colson Whitehead was nominated for the Underground Railroad. That was probably the least surprising <laughs> name on the list. Right. This book has generated probably the most praise in his entire career and attention. Of course, it was selected for Oprah Winfrey's book club. So in addition to Colson Whitehead, there was Karan Mahajan's novel, The Association of Small Bombs, which was very well reviewed. And that takes place in New Delhi. And it's about a community that's struggling to recover from a terrorist attack. And some of the characters sympathize with the terrorists. And so it's sort of a complicated, interesting look at at that issue. It's like the reluctant uh, fundamentalists in a way, kind of playing with that. Exactly. Another book that was extremely well-reviewed that is on the list is Adam Hazlitt's Imagine Me Gone, which is a very sort of sweeping novel that explores the effects of mental illness on generations of a single family. And that's one of his, I think, most ambitious books in his career. So Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to see him acknowledged for that. And another writer who I'm happy to see on the list is Jacqueline Woodson. She won the 2014 National Book Award for Young People's Literature for her memoir. And this year she's nominated in the adult category for another Brooklyn, which is a coming-of-age story set in 1970s Brooklyn. And it's her first adult novel in 20 years. So it's nice to see her acknowledged for kind of returning to that Mm -hmm. kind of writing. A couple other interesting choices. Elizabeth McKenzie's novel, The Portable Veblen, which has a friendly squirrel in it, and I sort of have a soft spot for it for yeah, that, that reason. Yeah, that book was edited by Ed Park at Penguin Press, and I think one of the first books that when he moved back uh, to book publishing or traditional publishing after being at Amazon and at uh, The Believer, I think that was one of the first books That's right. of his to come out. Yeah, so I'm sure he's thrilled. And then a couple other names on the list, Garth Greenwell for his debut novel, Brad Watson, Paulette Giles, and Chris Batchelder. What about nonfiction? Nonfiction is actually an interesting group this year as well. A lot of the same themes that we're seeing in the fiction category are coming up in the nonfiction category. There are multiple books about slavery, books about war and racism. Not a lot of popcorn. No, not a lot of light subjects this year. Last year, I think on the long list, there was a book about the octopus, which I thought was a great sort of nice kind of change of pace. Um, There have been like 
I don't know, five cephalopod books. Exactly. In the last like year and a half. There's another one coming later this fall. They're very hot. You'll explain that all in a future trend piece. I'm sure. I would love to do that. One interesting name I thought was um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Sympathizer. So he's now nominated in the nonfiction category for his book, which he has described as a kind of companion to that novel, Mm -hmm. Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. So it would be kind of neat to see him win two different literary prizes for books that he has kind of grouped together, worked on, you know, this, they're exploring the same themes, one through fiction and one through nonfiction. And that book was published by Harvard University Press. So that's kind of a rare nominee for uh, an academic press. Yes. Often you do not see academic presses winning the National Book Award simply, I think, because um, they're looking for more popular kind of reads. Mm-hmm. Um Another book that got a lot of attention this year and that critics went wild over is Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water, which is her history of the Attica prison uprising and its legacy. Not to be confused with Blood at the Roots, which came out this week and was reviewed by Jennifer Senior um, in The Times, which is about an all-white town in the South. Yes. No, this is this is different. And what's on the long list for young people's literature? So there are a lot of novels um, and nonfiction books that deal with, again, race, um, issues like domestic violence, how children cope during wartime. Really serious subjects are coming up in this category as well. Some of the nominees are Kwame Alexander for his novel Booked, uh, which is, I believe, a novel in verse. And I think it takes it sort of centers on this uh, teenage boy who's a basketball player and has various issues going on at home. There's also Kate DiCamillo's novel Rami Nightingale. Grace Lynn's When the Sea Turned to Silver, which is apparently inspired by Chinese folklore and sounds quite interesting. Um, And I think that's a companion book uh, to an earlier uh, novel. Oh, great. So now she's getting recognized for that. And Sarah Pennypacker's novel Pax, which is about a boy who is trying to be reunited with his pet fox during World War One, And it got tremendous reviews. So I think a lot of people are happy to see it getting recognized. And that's also illustrated by the completely brilliant John Classen, who has illustrated uh, so many picture that's books. Right. It's great to see him doing middle grade fiction. And in poetry, there are, you know, again, some uh, sort of books that span the gamut from really formidable Pulitzer Prize winning poets like Rita Dove to first time poets who just released their first collection like Solmaz Sharif and Kevin Young, Monica Yoon and Jane Mean were also recognized. All right. Well, a little round of applause for them. Yes. And across the ocean (laughs) in the UK, they have shortened their long list into a short list. Exactly. So that came out this week, too. Some interesting choices there. I was surprised that a lot of the authors were either from the UK or Canada. We didn't have a lot of people from the Commonwealth. They got rid of those Americans exactly. and Aussies. <laughs> we did have one American, the uh, the sellout by Paul Beatty. And that was on one there. of our 10 best yes. uh, at the book review last and year. And that's a sort of satirical novel about race. It's set in Los Angeles, and it's really dark comedy. Hot Milk by Deborah Levy is also on the list, and that has gotten tremendous reviews. Odessa Mosfeg's novel Eileen is on the list, and that is about a 24-year-old woman named Eileen who is caring for her alcoholic father and also working in a boys' prison and shoplifting on the side. So David Salai's All That Man Is is a collection of nine short stories about the lives of different men who are at various points in their lives. That's getting a lot of uh, positive reviews. Yes, and nice to see a short story collection on the short list. And finally, Madeline Tian's novel Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which follows a Chinese-Canadian woman who is obsessed with her long-deceased father, is on the short list as well. 
So what's next in uh, the award season of the fall? What's the next big announcement? Oh, it is endless. Well, we're going to have the short list uh, for the National Book Awards announced on October 13th. And then the winners will be announced on November 16th. And sometime in October, we're going to find out who the Nobel winner is, which is always exciting. Alexander, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you like hearing from authors and reviewers on the podcast, help us spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and rate the show or leave us a comment, preferably favorable. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Lauren Collins joins us from Paris, isn't that difficult, to talk about her new book, When in French, Love in a Second Language. Lauren, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm thrilled. You did not plan to write a memoir. How did this happen? The way it happened was that I thought that I was going to write a story that was going to have a very clear beginning and middle and an end, and that um, it would be reported and it would be more like the journalism work that I had done in my day job for going on 15 years. So I thought maybe true crime, maybe something, you know, a little bit Janet Malcolmish, nothing personal, nothing that would have too much to say about me. And then I found myself living in Geneva, Switzerland, and more to the point, living in French, a language that I really spoke zero words of. <laughs> so I became um, kind of immersed in this in this world first in my personal life, and then as things in your personal life tend to do, it began spilling over into my professional life in a way that I hadn't necessarily um, anticipated. So your your now husband, Olivier, is French. Did you fall in love in English? We fell in love exclusively in English. I didn't know any French, and he spoke very good English, and we were living in London at the time. You know, the thing that was so strange and mysterious and that was the germ of the book really was that there was this entire side of him that I didn't even get, um, well, a glimpse is the wrong word because I wasn't seeing it. I was hearing it. I didn't even overhear um, a peep of until several years into our relationship when when one night after, you know, my French kind of started to come together, I really felt like I had heard his voice for the first time. You grew up in, uh, in North Carolina. Did you learn a foreign language growing up or were you just, did you somehow manage to escape that? Um, I studied a foreign language. I did not learn a foreign language. I think it would be good distinction. Yeah, I think um, I I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. And as I write in the book, um, I think I had like one year of first grade French or something like that. And then the school I was in switched to Spanish. And we were told that that's because it would be practical in, in speaking with immigrants who tended to you know, in our area, as in many in the United States, to be more Spanish-speaking than French-speaking. But in the town, you know, where I was, it never dawned on anyone that, hey, we might also become immigrants, or we might travel, or we might go out and use the language in different ways. Yeah, I didn't have a passport until I was 19. You know, to become, at one point, an American living in Switzerland with a Frenchman I'd met in England, uh, No, it didn't even seem like a possibility um, until almost exactly when it happened. Did you 
have a lot of trepidation about writing about such a private uh, subject, you know, about yourself, about falling in love, um, about being exposed at something you don't know about um, the French language, given the fact that most of your writing for The New Yorker has been, as you mentioned earlier, reported stories about other people. Tons. (laughs) Tons of trepidation. I mean, I was really, you know, as I said, I'd never done a lot of personal writing. And I thought, is this going to be difficult? Am I going to feel really vulnerable, you know, revealing these things about myself. And as you said, also, um, you know, wading into something, you know, I'm a person who uses words for a living, but here I am trying to write about a language to which I'm a latecomer, mm-hmm. in which I'll never be as fluent and articulate and well-versed as I'd like to be. So, yeah, I was terrified, but then I started doing it. And, I mean, the great part was, like, it it came. I mean, it turned out I sat down and I was a far bigger narcissist than I ever would have dreamed <laughs> because I loved writing the personal parts. And I mean, I think it was something about which I had a lot to say. A subject you were passionate about. Passionate about passion, it turns out. And, um, no, but it, it flowed really easily once I got it going. And that was a big surprise to me, really. Now, for such a passionate subject um, and uh, passionate writing, you choose to organize the book in a very interesting way, something most people are not passionate about, which is grammar. And you you have these, I think, brilliant uh, way of organizing it by verb tense. How did you come up with that? It was just this instance of total crossover, as as I said, between my personal and professional life. I mean, I was going to immersive French classes um, five hours a day. And I think that's just where my head was. My head was, you know, every single sentence I was uttering, every event I was recounting, every past action I was mentally checking, whether it was a repeated past action or a one-time thing. And so I think I was just toggling back and forth between my French class and my writing and my writing and my French class. And I sat down one day and realized that in memoir, we're dealing with kind of different kinds of past. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about my childhood, you know, there was this synergy between the French and the writing. And I was thinking about my childhood and I thought, okay, well, that's imperfect. And then I was thinking about the love story, which had happened much more recently in in this kind of bounded way because it it took place in London. And then I thought, well, that's the passé composé. And so it was something really that um, just dawned on me out of the proximity of my French studies and, you know, things that I was trying to do with the rest of my brain. In the excerpt of your book in The New Yorker um, in August, the way that uh, it was it was written in the print edition, it had this great uh, question at the top, which, which was, would I be a different person in French? And I find that such an interesting line of inquiry. I mean, does your personality change in another language? Utterly. You know, this is in some ways a factor of coming to French later in life. I'd be interested, I have had these conversations, and it is interesting to hear how people who grew up speaking two languages consecutively, for example, also feel themselves to be quite different in ways. For me, acquiring a new language when I was 32, 33 was like cloning myself. I mean, I feel like a totally different person. Listen to me. Do I sound like somebody who could pull off calling something formidable or execlub with a straight face. I mean, but, you know, my French self does that. Yeah, I think I inhabit a very different personality in that language. 
It's funny because I, um, with my children who are each learning to various degrees French, I sort of have to say to them, look, I know it's really embarrassing to sound French. There's something about it that is like (laughs) to say something like, ooh la la, and like not feel like a complete idiot is a very hard thing for most Americans. I started telling myself that I had to think of my French persona as almost like, you know, a Sasha Fierce to English's Beyonce. (laughs) There's no way it works unless you embrace the performative aspect of it, which has taken me a really long time. I mean, I think that for me was just, I like doing a good conjugation table here and there, but getting out in public and actually doing the gestures and contorting your lips in the way that you need to, to have an intelligible accent and all of the kind of more performative aspects of speaking a language are, it can be really awkward for a certain kind of person. I think it's kind of akin to like doing stand-up comedy or improv where you just have to let go of the fact that you're going to look like an idiot if you sort of see yourself too much outside of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You have to turn off every single brain cell and somehow (laughs) let your body take over, which is not, again, that easy for like someone who's used to being a little bit more cerebral. I mean, there's a part in the book where I I write about seeing Bradley Cooper in this YouTube clip. He got on national television, like on the evening news in France, and just reeled off like a 10-minute interview. I mean, he was great. Like, he was really credible. And so she goes at the end of it, so how did you learn French anyway? And he said, well, I studied for six months in Aix-en-Provence when I was a sophomore in college. And I just thought, this is mortifying. Like, it's Bradley Cooper. You know, I've been living, <laughs> living in a Francophone country for like two years at that point. And, and then I re- that was when I realized that, like, I had to put a little Cooper into it and just stop worrying about how stupid I look. There's a line in your book um, in which you quote Olivier um, as saying to you something along the lines of talking to you in English is like touching you with gloves on. Did you worry about, like, is he going to love me as much in French? That line slayed me when he said that. I, I guess I had been coming at it all along from, like, what am I missing? Because since he had two languages and I only had one, I felt like he had all the information. He could go both ways, but I felt like I was the one who was who was kind of lacking clues and and this ability. But when he said that, I realized that there was a hole for him there too. That until I spoke his language um, to a certain degree, and not just speaking the language, but through learning the language, absorbing so much of the culture that comes along with it, that 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 was going to be an ache for him. You know, there would be something that was missing. And so when we had that conversation, that was a real catalyst for me to get serious about doing it. Final question for you. What is your favorite expression, the favorite thing that you learned in French that maybe doesn't happen or happen as well in English? I really think Fratrie is a great word that describes like the, it's, it's almost like a word for a human litter. <laughs> like it means, um, you know, a set of brothers and sisters, which you need to use a lot more words to say in English. You, you know, there are a couple of things, bouleverser, a verb, um, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, something kind of just bowls you over is a great one that I also am kind of groping around for now in English. But my favorite phrase is kind of a dirty one, and it's one that <laughs> I learned really early, but 
to say kind of like you want to have your cake and eat it too, you can say, to want le beurre, l'argent du beurre, mm-hmm. et le, le cul uh, de la cremière, which is um, to want the, the butter, to want the butter money, and the ass of the dairy woman um, <laughs> all in one. So that's, that's one that stuck with me. Um, well, I see your dirty phrase, and I'll raise it to my favorite one, which is um, an insult not directed at you, va chier dans ta caisse, which is go sh- in your cage. <laughs> we should not get going on French insults. That's right. It's a whole other book. <laughs> exactly. But um, no, I'll, I'll try to deploy that one today in your honor. All right. Uh, I'm sure there will be plenty of opportunity. And um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. It's been great talking to you. And the book again is When in French, Love in a Second Language by Lauren Collins. My colleagues Greg Coles and John Williams join us now to talk about what we're reading and what other people are reading. Let's start with the other people. Greg? The hardcover bestseller lists are very busy this week. Um, there are a lot of new titles both in fiction and in nonfiction. It's the fall. <laughs> it's the fall. Um, notably, um, Amor Towels has a um, new spy novel out called A Gentleman in Moscow, new at number eight on the hardcover fiction list. Jonathan Safran Foer's divorce novel, Here I Am, uh, makes its debut at number seven. It's interesting you're calling it the divorce novel. Like some people are calling it the divorce novel. Some people are calling it the Israel novel. I, it's it's very much an Israel novel as well, of course. There's a, a big earthquake that um, happens in Israel and a call goes out for Jews around the world to uh, come to the motherland to, to help defend it against the Arabian neighbors who are trying to take advantage of the earthquake. Actually, I want to call out something that you did in your bestseller column this week, uh, which is a little pop quiz, <laughs> um, asking readers to parse phrases from Jonathan Safran Foer's divorce novel, we'll call it, <laughs> um, and uh, Glenn Doyle Melton's new memoir, Love Warrior, which is the new Oprah pick, to pick out which phrases go with which book. So, yeah, I mean, that may be one reason that I'm calling the Foer a divorce novel is because it was convenient for, for me to do that uh, for the column this week. Um, you know, marriage takes a real beating in that novel, and marriage takes a real beating in Glennon Doyle Melton's memoir, Love Warrior, uh, which makes its debut at number one on the hardcover nonfiction list. Um, that's very much a memoir of infidelity. And it closes uh, without real resolution in the marriage, but we've found out from her blog since the book came out that the marriage, in fact, has not survived um, after her husband cheated on her a number of times and then confessed to it. They went through therapy, and th- this is the book of that process. The marriage finally did dissolve. I took a look at those two books saying um, that they both cover kind of similar territory. Can you tell which lines come from the fiction and which lines come from the fact? All right. So the quiz is in the print edition, and it'll be online, and the answers will be online at nytimes.com slash books for those who want to test themselves. <laughs> What's new on nonfiction? Well, besides the um, Melton memoir, uh, there is also um, Tom Rinaldi's uh, book uh, looking at the equities trader Wells Crowther, um, who really saved a lot of lives on uh, 9-11 at the World Trade Center. Um, That book is called The Red Bandana, and it's new at number 12. Um, 
Then Dave Barry's got a new book um, called Best State Ever. It's a look at Florida. I do something similar in my column with that book and Carl Hyacin's Razor Girl, which is new at number two on the fiction list, um, both uh, comic looks at Florida. And so I, I pull out some sentences from there. Um, John le Carre's memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, uh, is new at number 10. Um, and Margot Lee Shetterly has a book called Hidden Figures uh, that is a look at the scientists, the um, predominantly female African-American scientists um, who haven't really been acknowledged um, as playing a central role in the early days of the American space program. Mm-hmm. Um, I that- love the uh, these books about uh, human computers and the fact that they were all women. Yeah. Um, and so that book, Hidden Figures, is new at number seven on the nonfiction list. All right, John, I'm very relieved um, that you came in this week not carrying two books, but only one um, because you've been putting us to shame. (laughs) Yeah, well, I only had time for work reading this week. So um, I have a review uh, that is up online now of... Alice Kaplan's new book, Looking for the Stranger, Albert Camus and the Life of a Literary Classic. Kaplan is a professor of French at Yale, and she's written books about French history before and also her own experience with the French language and and learning it and and learning to love it, but also have a complicated relationship with it. Continuing the thread from our earlier conversation with Lauren Collins. Exactly. This book, she says that the inspiration for this book was Michael Gora's book a couple of years ago about Henry James's Portrait of a Lady. It's sort of a biography of a book, mm-hmm. how it was put together, what the author's life was like when it was happening. And of course, Camus is, uh, in addition to The Stranger being a really uh, profound and influential book, Camus' life is incredibly complicated. And the politics of the time, given that it was the late 1930s and early 1940s, he was living, uh, he's a native Algerian, of course, and he was living in what was already a colony of France, but then also under Nazi-occupied France. So there were a lot of different layers to what he was going through as an activist and as a thinker. Um, And there's a lot of how he got from sort of some of his philosophical underpinnings to making it dramatic or somewhat dramatic in The Stranger. Because it is kind of an inert, icy book in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, I reread parts of it for this review. And I also reread some of two other books that I really love that are, uh, I think, antecedents of it, which are Sartre's Nausea and Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. And there is something about Camus' book that's really uh, unprecedented, I think, because it's uh, it's really much more detached. It's The narrator is not you know, garrulous or funny in a dark way. He just really doesn't, it seems like he just doesn't feel anything happening around him. And Kaplan herself is a really lucid writer. She knows a lot about, you know, literary criticism, history, biography. So she kind of weaves these things together in a nice way. I think you have to have interest, obviously, in the book. It's not, it's not one of these gripping narratives where you would just give it to any reader and say, like um, the professor and the madman or something. Here's this chapter of literary history that's crazy and and stands on its own. Um, But if you do know the book and if you're interested in Camus and and really mid-century history, um, it's really well done. We'll have to ask you one totally incongruous question. What is your favorite fun fact that you learned from this book, given the the very unfun subject? Well, I'm always a fan of publishing history. And so it was interesting and fun to learn about the reaction of readers at Knopf, the American publisher that um, was actually really eager to acquire The Plague, Camus' uh, Nazi allegory novel, um, when it was on the verge of being published and sort of hesitated to also include the stranger in that deal but ended up doing it and so you read about some of the the people that can often their reaction to the stranger and one of the early readers um, wrote in a memo that the book is pleasant unexciting reading 
and padded with extraneous detail seems to me neither very important nor very memorable. Oh my concluded, God, I love that. My best guess is that it will appeal to very few readers and produce something less than a sensation, which is almost exactly the opposite of what happened. It appealed <laughs> right. to many, many readers, and it's maybe one of the most sensational books of the century. And that person's probably, you know... Like the top ranks of Knopf today. Um, <laughs> we'll let the person go unnamed. Yes, exactly. All right, Craig, what are you reading? I've also been doing some work reading. Um, I am moderating a panel this Sunday at the Brooklyn Book Festival um, with Joyce Carol Oates and Andre Dubus III and a writer named Alexis DeVoe, whom I had not heard of. Um, but she published um, really a, a lovely dreamlike novel with a small press out of Berkeley, uh, California, called Redbone Press. Uh, the name of her novel is Yabo, Y-A-B-O. These are um, three books that all kind of take on the theme of romantic love and uh, look at it through um, its effect on the individual, uh, whether it makes you more yourself or takes you outside yourself. This is the way that we'll be discussing it um, in at, at the Brooklyn Book Festival. And so I've been reading it very much through that filter. Um, at the same time, I've been doing some personal reading, and it, it makes a really nice counterpoint to these novels um, and that theme. Uh, I've been reading Olivia Lang's book, The Lonely City. Um, she had written an earlier uh, kind of cultural study called uh, The Trip to Echo Springs, uh, which was a study of writers and alcoholism and their, their treatment of alcohol in their writing. She did just a, a lovely job with it. She's got this very fluid voice. And um, this time she, she does something similar uh, in The Lonely City. It's still a cultural study. Instead of looking at writers this time, she's looking at visual artists um, and the subject of loneliness and how they've treated it in their work. And at the same time, it's partly a memoir and partly a study of loneliness itself. Um, she's writing about her time in New York City after the breakup of, of a romantic relationship. Uh, she came to New York City for a man who promptly dumped her. And she is a British writer, and, and she had upended her life in uh, London to come to New York and suddenly found herself alone. Um, and she revisits that time in this book, um, partly in memoir, and then um, turns to look at especially these four artists. Um, Edward Hopper is, is the obvious example of an artist who tackled loneliness in his work. Um, and then the outsider artist Henry Darger or Darger. Uh, it's it's not clear how his last name was pronounced because he was such an outsider. He he really lived alone <laughs> mm -hmm. his whole life and and he was uh, off the pronunciation. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Um, and and then uh, David Wojnarowicz and surprisingly Andy Warhol, who uh, you would not think of as um, representing loneliness at all because he was so social. Mm -hmm. uh, but she looks at how he used his art as a way to kind of impose distance between himself and other people and, and kind of navigate that personal space and, mm -hmm. and keep some space for himself. And so it's, um, it's a book that reminds me a little bit of Catherine Schultz's Being Wrong uh, mm -hmm. in that it takes um, you know, a, a subject that is common to everybody and very familiar to all of us and then just kind of dives deep to look at it from every angle saw Andy Warhol when I was in high school in the store Fiorucci's um, in, on the Upper East Side. What and was he doing? He was looking at like the little kind of impulse buys, like the little gigas, <laughs> the kind of things that like teenage girls really like and sort like of ooing and ah, Exactly. But like, you know, like little lipstick cases and purses and like various just small items that of a humorous or um, cute nature. And so as a teenage girl at the time, I just, I felt like, oh, like, <laughs> 
Andy that Warhol seems, likes this stuff too. That seems too perfect as a run in with Warhol. And Pamela, have you had time to read this week? No, um, I have not. And so, uh, continuing the theme of working rather than reading, which is very depressing, um, in Hamilton, which I continue to read quite slowly. Um, it's a big book. It is a big book. And when I tried to carry it with me, the, the cover started to fray ever so slightly, and I got alarmed. So now it just stays home. I'm basically like still in the first song. There's like a few bits of like right hand man um, in it. So he's still like he's under Washington. You know, I guess the thing that leaps out to me now, and it's no surprise to anyone who's listened to the music, is just how quickly Hamilton rose when he came to New York um, from the Caribbean and had so little formal education, so few connections. For him to have risen up so quickly is incredibly striking. And obviously, the military has often been um, instrumental in helping people sort of leap over social classes and circumstances. But I guess the depressing thing about it is that uh, that kind of incredible social mobility is a lot more rare today. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like what Hillbilly Elegy is about, about, you know, just how unusual it is at this point in our kind of social, cultural, political economic economic landscape in this country to leap over um, classes. I often classes. think about that just in terms of the size of the country and population, because I, when I was looking back at um, Benjamin Franklin's memoir several years ago, I was struck by how you could kind of come here and just meet the influential people much more easily, and those things just much, happen much more quickly. I was going to say it sounds like there's room for kind of a, a niche book called Alexander Hamilton's Guide to Success, but maybe it wouldn't be applicable. <laughs> you know, anymore. I actually think there is a book out like that now, so someone got there first, That John. industry is tough um, to tap right. into now. <laughs> There goes your get-rich-quick publishing plan. (laughs) All right, I'll report to work tomorrow. (laughs) All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 